we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are uh, amazed at this great gift of Jesus. Help us to learn more of that. Many of us have been thinking about his coming, this incarnation, year after year after year after year. And I pray that this moment would be a time of thinking upon the incarnation in such a way that it would thrill our souls. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah, please, in chapter 9. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We read this last Sunday. We'll read it again this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Please hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You've broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want, God will help me, to take this this expression, mighty God. That's a title, a name, a title really of this Emmanuel, this one who was in the days of Isaiah to come, who for us has come this One named Jesus, and here in this word, this prophetic word concerning him, uh, he's called mighty God. Question, what does it mean? Of course, and then why does it really matter? So he's mighty God. If you allow me one more review, just to set context so that we know why it is that Isaiah was thinking upon these lines. I I hope you're, you're putting this bit of ancient history together uh, with this prophetic word and thus this one who is to come you remember king of ancient judah uh, ahaz uh, there's a crisis in ancient judah there is no peace the big question is how can there be peace and by peace was meant primarily a political or military political peace that is how could the nation be at peace with all of its neighbors and all of that Uh, Israel to the north and Syria was coming against them thus Ahaz knew he needed at least two things one he needed a plan and two he needed power he needed strength in order to withstand the coming of these nations against him and so he had a plan that he thought would be powerful enough for him and the nation to survive that is he was going to make an alliance with ancient Assyria this great 
power of the day. And he thought, I'll pay tribute to Assyria. They'll protect us. Now, to do that, of course, he would have to yield the very heart of his people, the very heart of Judah, to the Assyrians. That was his plan. Isaiah came to him with a different plan. And that plan was to trust God. And so Isaiah comes to him and says, trust God. God will protect you. God will defend you. These nations won't succeed against you. And so trust him. In fact, he's willing to give you a sign, you remember. And Ahaz turned the sign away because he really didn't want to trust God. He had the plan that he was going to pursue and he was going to keep. And that made sense to him. This trusting God didn't make sense to him, even though echoed throughout all of this was this throne of David, this rule of David, the fact that you are the king of Judah and you sit on the throne of David and God will protect you and all of that. None of that seemed to matter for him. And so he was, he was committed to follow this other plan. And so there's a sense in which God turned away from him and gave a sign of peace, not just simply a peace at the moment, not just a peace with, with Israel and with Syria, not even a peace with Assyria or any of that, not peace in that moment, but everlasting, eternal peace. He said a child's going to come. And it'll be Emmanuel, that little L part of Emmanuel. The L part means God. And so... God with us, with us, God. This, this one who will come will be with us, God, God with us. We know that this sign, which was that a virgin would give birth. Who would think that? That a virgin would give birth to this child. We know that he's come. We know the virgin. This woman, Mary, gave birth. Holy Spirit overshadowed her, as the scripture says, came upon her. And, and she conceived a child, though she had never known a man. And this child was born Jesus. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. He would save his people uh, from their sins. He would be the deliverer. He would be this one who would sit on the throne of David. He would be the one who would rule and reign. Uh, Again, no surprise of all of this because we see verse 7, the increase of his government and peace. There'll be no end. It'll be this forever peace because of the rule of this one who will come on this throne of David, that, 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 that kingship, if you will, that had been promised. So there he is. It's Jesus. And now who would he be? Well, we found last Sunday, you remember, that he's wonderful counselor, that he would have a, a plan that we could never think of, a plan that nobody could ever think of other than this very one. Because who amongst us, who in all of history thus far, was able to conceive of peace? And really have a plan and really pursue it and really bring it to pass and really bring peace on the earth. It simply hasn't happened. And frankly, as we look out, just naturally speaking, as we read the newspapers, as we understand the world in which we live, it's really impossible, apart from peace being brought to us from the outside, it's impossible for us to think that you and I, that we... Human beings will be successful in bringing peace on the earth. We haven't been successful. Why do we think we're going to be successful at this? This is one, this child is going to be born and he's going to sit and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And when he rules and reigns, peace will come. He'll bring it because he has a plan that no one else could ever think of. But it's the plan. And also he's going to bring the strength to execute that plan. He, in fact, will be mighty 
God. No surprise, Emmanuel, God with us. Oh yes, of course, God with us. And God who is strong will bring the very strength of his might to make this happen. In other words, nothing can thwart his plan. Every enemy, every enemy of peace, every enemy will be by him defeated. And so that's what we find here, this very one L, God, with us. L, mighty God, mighty, this mighty one who will come. Notice in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. I'm sorry, verse 7. The very last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, God was known as the Lord of hosts. In other words, he had this host, this heavenly host, and really they were the very warriors of God. And they would come and they would, they would defeat enemies. In, in fact, God was known throughout all of ancient Israel and all of Judah as this very one who was God who would triumph over enemies. Psalm 24, for instance, it's a psalm that we use often as a call to worship. Um, It begins like this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof in the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and, and established it upon the rivers. And then this question is asked, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Who can come and, and be at peace in the very presence of God? And verse 4 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, and doesn't swear deceitfully. And I read that and I go, Oh man, I'm in trouble. Right? I know what this means, clean hands and a pure heart, and I know my own heart and hands in that sense. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then, then he says, lift up your heads, O gates. You see, by that time, my head's not lifted up very high, if that's what it takes in order to be in the presence of God. And he says, well, lift up your head. You know, and he uses this image of gates, you know, entering in. Lift up your gates, uh, your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Wow, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your, your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. In other words, the psalmist says, listen, this, the Lord will come and he'll fight for you. He'll be your warrior and he'll win this so that you may stand in his very presence. You see, that was the nature of God to his people. You remember, I mentioned this. Last week, perhaps, or at least the week before, where in Exodus chapter 14, after the Israelites left Egypt, you remember? In fact, the leaving of Egypt was an expression of God, the warrior, coming and fighting for his people. Because you see, when uh, these plagues came against ancient Egypt, against Egypt, these plagues came, whether it was against the river Nile or the frogs or the firstborn son, they all targeted the gods of Egypt. They worshipped the river Nile. They worshipped nature. They even worshipped the firstborn son, most especially of the Pharaoh, of the leader, if you will. He would be the next one who would lead the people. 
And so each time, each plague, God was saying, I'm God, you're not. I'm God, you're not. Release my people, they're mine. And so we see God, even in the midst of that, was fighting for them. But, but this great scene, you remember, where, where the Israelites, as they come and they've, they've left Egypt, and now they have the Red Sea to their one side and the Pharaoh's army to the other. You remember the, the line that, that came from Moses to the people. He said, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord with which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, shall, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. So listen, God will come on your behalf and destroy your enemy. In fact, after all this happened, you remember what happened about the Red Sea opening and the Israelites going through. And then as the Pharaoh's army came, it collapsed on them and killed them. And, 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 and a song was written. And Moses and all the people sang this song. And, he, and here is how it goes, Exodus chapter 15. It says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is, this, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Other versions would have it simply like this. The Lord is a warrior. He'll fight for us. He comes to defeat all of his and our enemies. In fact, so true was this in the midst of God's people that at every turn they were said, trust God, he'll fight for you. Don't be afraid of, don't be afraid of your enemies. Um, in fact, Deuteronomy in chapter 20, as Moses is laying out what's true for the people as they prepare to enter into this land that God would give them. He says, listen, when you go out to fight to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. This sense that God will come and defeat enemies so that we may have peace. He says, trust him. He'll, he'll do this on your behalf. Happens as the people entered the land. Joshua was the great recipient, of course, of, of this God fighting for them. And thus, as, 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 as they entered the land, the enemies were defeated. And, and after all that took place, Joshua, reflecting back on this, Joshua chapter 23, uh, says this. He says, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. And later he, he, he wants to convince them that that's the case. And he says, this is what it's looked like. He says, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand uh, before you up to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised. He says, weren't you surprised in some of those battles? When one man 
poetically speaking, but we get his points, puts to flight a thousand? Didn't you say, oh, God must be with me? He says, of course he was. That's why we're here. That's why we're in this land. That's why this has happened. You couldn't have done it. They were stronger and bigger than you. But God has come and he has fought for you. Perhaps, at least for me, as many of you know, there's never a greater scene than in Second Chronicles chapter 20 with Jehoshaphat. There he was. He had enemies on every corner. And he looked at his people and he said, we're doomed And he was afraid, so he turned and sought the Lord, and the people began to fast. And Joshua prayed. And his last expression, you might remember, is a nice little rhyme, at least in English. He says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And so the prophet came to him, and he said, don't be afraid. Tomorrow, go up and face these enemies, for the Lord God will fight for you. Now, of course, my line would have been, well, if God's going to fight, then why do I have to go? Well, that's how he's going to fight, of course. He's going to fight through them, if you will. He'll be with you. So all that you do will be magnified in that sense. Though they're stronger and greater, trust him, he'll fight. The battle will be won. And then one of my favorite expressions, I say that just to, Say, personally, I feed off this expression often. And it's simply this. They rose early the next morning. Which means they must have slept that night. Which means, in the midst of their enemies, they slept. Why? Because they had the word of the prophet that said, God will fight for you. Don't be afraid. I often think of that. When I'm afraid, and I wonder if the next moment will be one wherein I can survive. And I think, oh, they rose early the next morning, which means I can rest in the midst of my enemies. And so they rose early the next morning, you see, and they went out and you know what they did? They sang. It's not always the best strategy, by the way, especially for someone who sings like me. But, but they sang, and as they sang, then God caused great commotion among the people. They attacked one another, and the, and the enemy was defeated. And at the end of the day, they were able to say, look, our God really does fight for us. He really does defeat our enemies. Now, I doubt that there was anyone really in all of Israel who knew that better than King David. Because, you see, he was the one who would prefigure, in a sense, this one who was to come. This throne of David would be occupied by this Emmanuel, if you will. And and so this David was one who would prefigure, if you will, this one who was to come. And he, this David, was the champion of the people. You remember. He was young, but yet he had heard about this battle going on. His brothers were in it, and so he was tending the sheep. But he went and took some snacks to his brother, brothers who were on the, the front line, if you will. And when he got there, there was a nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath, and he was taunting the army of Israel. And Goliath was saying, send your best to me. Let's fight. Let's have this out. And, and, and David couldn't imagine why anybody wasn't going out to fight, why, why nobody was volunteering for this. He says, why isn't anybody volunteering? He's insulting our God. Let's go. Let's, come on. Let's see this happen. And no one would. So David said, I will. 
And see, his confidence was in the very fact that he knew that God was with him, that God would fight for his people. And so as he comes out before Goliath, he said to him this. He said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down, cut off your head. I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he'll give you into uh, our hand. And so you know what happened. But see, this is the picture really of the champion the mighty warrior God. Because you see, David stands on behalf of all the people in that battle. This isn't just a little kid story where you color in, you know, it's not a halftime speech, right? This is is the gospel. This David and Goliath, David stands on behalf of the people and he does battle against the evil one and defeats it. And when he wins, the people win. And when he defeats the enemy, the enemy loses all of them. He fights the one, and they all lose, you see. And there it is, the mighty warrior. This one who's going to come and sit on the throne of David is going to be like that. For us, he's going to stand. For us, he's going to face the enemy. For us, he's going to do battle. And when he wins, we win. And when the enemy loses, the enemy loses. He'll come and defeat his mighty God. It's when Jesus who comes is Emmanuel, God with us. He comes like that to do that kind of battle. He is, in fact, God. We read of this throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. This great expression in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. This is John's introduction, his prologue. And he's saying, listen, just like Genesis 1 started in the beginning, I'm going to start this gospel in the beginning. And I want to tell you about that beginning who was there. This one was the very word of God. The word become flesh to dwell among us, Emmanuel. He was there in the beginning. He's eternal. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's the creator. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. He's the very giver of life. And life was the light of men. And so he says, this is it, you see. This is the very one. God with us, Emmanuel. Really, God. So when we think of mighty God, he's really, the God part is true. He is the very essence, the very substance, the very characteristics, the very power, if you will, of God. As we read through all of the Gospels, the Gospel of John, we find that that, that, that as Jesus presents himself, the religious leaders charge him with blasphemy because they realize what he's saying. He's saying, I am God. For instance, he heals a man on the Sabbath and declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that expression, Lord, was only to be used in that context, in that way related to the Sabbath of God. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. And after he said that, he says, my father is working until now and I'm working. Their response was this, according to 
the Apostle John. He said this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, making himself equal with God. You might remember, too, that he had a discussion with these religious leaders as well. And he was speaking to them about Abraham. And he used this expression. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, they really should, got him, should have gotten him for faulty grammar. But his point could only be made by saying it like that. Because he was saying, I am, the very name of God. He was saying, I was then, before the time of Abraham, I am now. How shall I describe myself? I can only describe myself the way that God describes himself, the way that God described himself uh, at the bush with Moses. I am. I have always been. I always will be. I'm self-determining. This is who I am. No one determines me. I am. And so they knew exactly what he was saying. It says they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they knew this blasphemy. On another occasion, he said to them, I and the Father are one. They understood again what, they, what he was saying. And so they, so they took up stones to throw at him. Jesus said, if you honor me, you honor God. If you believe in me, you believe in God. He says, listen, if you receive me, it's like receiving God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. How else can I put it? I forgive your sins. I receive your worship. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? I'm God among you. The one of whom Isaiah spoke, mighty God, that's that's me, I'm the bread of life. The very manna that sustains, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world, you can't live without that. I'm the very light of the world, without me you can't live. He said, I'm the good shepherd, bells and whistles should have been going up. The good shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. The good shepherd, you mean that, that shepherd that, 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 that the prophet Ezekiel spoke of in Ezekiel chapter 34 when he said, when God said, I'll be your shepherd, I'll come and I'll rescue you. You're scattered, but, but I'll rescue you. I'll come for you. I will do that. Your kings aren't doing that. I will do that. So I'll come and I'm the good shepherd. Yes, that very one. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There isn't any other way to the Father, but through me. I'm the resurrection and the life, you see. You can't live without me. I'm the true vine. If you're not attached to me, you'll die. All of these, Jesus spoke, of course, of of himself. And he came, you see, to, to reverse everything that had been lost because of sin. You see, that's really, as we've said, and it's no surprise you come to church, you'll hear about sin. That's the very guts of it, isn't it? It isn't, it isn't the, 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 the political enemies that are the problem, really. Oh, they manifest, they manifest this lack of peace in the midst of human existence, of course. But, but, but what's going to solve that? All we know are things like negotiation. Things like trade. Things like, I have this. If you'll be nice to me, I'll give it to you or sell it to you. And we'll be in relationship together as long as we can have this mutually beneficial transaction going on. All will be well. But, but, but we know what happens when, 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 when that stops. You build up a bigger army than yours so we can have peace. But is that really peace? We know the real problem is this thing within called sin. It's our rebellion against God that causes us to be selfish and prideful and all of that. Who can deal with that, you see? 
That takes not only a good plan, but that takes power to overcome that. Because you see, that brings bondage in our lives. We get stuck to that sin. Destroys us. We can't get out of it. Who can? He comes, you see, to deal with that enemy. But the ancient prayer book puts it to defend against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The prayer is, oh God, defend us from the deceit of the world, the deceit of the flesh, the deceit of the devil, the world, the system that, that's filled with rebellious people, you see, prideful people, that ends up with values and affections quite different than that of God's. The, the, the flesh that is the sinful inclinations with which we all deal, that we all know, and the devil, this evil one, that comes against and informs the world and and tempts the flesh, if you will. Jesus comes against all of those. Nothing can can keep him. We see the impact of this sin in various ways, and Jesus overcomes it. He overcomes it by way of healing disease. We see he's more powerful than than that which brings disease and destroys human beings physically. He comes and he he deals with, with, with even death. Most amazing moment as we read through the New Testament, most amazing until we get to the crucifixion and resurrection, it seems to me has to be this raising of Lazarus from the dead. How astounding is that? That here's one at his very word brings one who's clearly dead. The scripture very explicit. He's been dead for four days. And, and King James is quite nice here. It said he stinketh is he? That's, that's how dead he is. Go take a whiff. I need to be a doctor to know, yeah. He raises him from the dead. Who is he? Quite astoundingly to me, it's then that, that a great plan is plotted against Jesus to kill him. Wouldn't you think someone would raise their hand and say, wait a minute, will that do any good? He can raise the dead. Astounding, you see comes to deal with that. And the way he deals with this enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil is astounding to us. Who would have thought that he would come and give himself to die? The very plan of God, you see. Who would give himself to die, but we realize that then in his death, he defeated the power of sin. He defeated the evil one. He defeated the world. He defeated even our flesh, you see, and breaks the bondage of all of that. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians this concerning the work of, of Jesus even against, even against the evil one. He puts it like this. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He says, this is what God did in Jesus. He made us alive. He forgave our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. The law comes against us and says, look at your sin. 
And your sin deserves eternal death. And so Jesus came to take that. And when he took it, and when he paid, of course, then that was satisfied. The legal demands of the law were satisfied. Who would have thought? And who could do that except this one, not only who is a good plan, but who is mighty to defeat sin and death by his own death. Set aside. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is, not simply Pilate and the Roman authorities, of course, but these spiritual authorities that as long as our sin hasn't been paid for, has something over us. You see, Satan is often called the great accuser. Why is that? Because we have something about which to be accused, our sin. And so he comes to accuse us. And he says, look at your sin. If ever God gets a hold of you, he's going to send you straight to hell. So you better stay away from him. And we go, yeah. But then you see, once that's been paid for, and Satan comes to us and says, you know, because of your sin, you better stay away from God or he'll send you straight to hell. We'll say, no. It's already been dealt with. One's already experienced that for me. So I I need to go directly to him that I might be reconciled to him because now I can. And you see, the evil one then is silenced. He has nothing with which to accuse us, about which to accuse us. And so when he comes to us, he says, you know, Bill, you're a great sinner. I said, oh, I know. You're not telling me anything I don't know. They say, what about this? I said, I've got others maybe you don't even know about. Right? He says, you better stay away from God. I said, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. I'm not proud of these things, but, but, but it's been taken care of. You have nothing with which to accuse me. The case has been settled. Thus you see. So, Paul would write First Corinthians and chapter 15. He would write this. You would say, death is swallowed up in victory. Death was your victory. Death was your sting. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was, you know, the real sting of death is sin. That's, that's the painful part of it. You see, when you die because of sin, and then you face God in your sin, that's the fear of it. That's the fear of death. But he says, all right, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? This sting must have been taken out. Well, the power of sin is the law that is the law that accuses it. But once the law has been satisfied, you see, then there isn't any accusation. The case is closed. Someone comes to accuse us before God. He says, no, no, I don't have a record of that. That's that's expunged. That's taken care of. His mind is forgiven, you see. And thus, you see, the victory has come, this mighty God. And so we know that now this mighty God, Jesus, now sits and intercedes for us. Hebrews in chapter 7 puts it like this uh, of Jesus. It says, verse 23, the former priests, that is human priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, that is because of that, because he's alive. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, completely, Those who draw near to God through him since 
he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, he's still defending us, still fighting for us, you see. Again, that's why the apostle can write of the trials and difficulties of our own life. He could say, he could say this uh, about that. He says, God is faithful, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is, there's these common things, temptations, trials, difficulties, all of that. He said, but God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, listen, he's interceding for you. You can trust him. Whatever you're going through, Whatever you're going through, please know that he's still defending you. And this would not have come into your life. It didn't come into your life because it overtook Jesus. It came into your life because he knows that through it, you'll be made strong. He's still interceding. He'll offer you help. Thus we can pray. Hebrews chapter 4, he sympathizes with our weakness. So we can come to him. And his throne is a throne of grace. And he'll offer us mercy and grace for every moment, every time of need. And those are real times of need. In other words, these things don't just gloss over. These things just don't flow away. We just don't pray this prayer and all of a sudden we're floating. No, no, no. We're struggling and we're in the midst of it. But we can trust him in the midst of that he'll be with us and he'll help us through that particular moment with mercy and grace. We know, of course, then, that because of his might and power, Because he's God with us that the mission to which he's called us, that is to proclaim this gospel, to build a church, will succeed. Because the great expression of the apostle in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God to all who believe. It's the power of God. It isn't just a philosophy. It's just not good information. It's just not a plan, but it's the very power of God. He comes and he he works in us, and we know that to be true. How else could we have believed if one more powerful than our own sin, more powerful than the influence of the world, more powerful than the deceit of Satan, if one more powerful than all of that, wouldn't have come and defeated all of that for us. We'd still be in bondage to all of that. But the gospel is the power of God. To all who believe, it's first to the Jew, then the Gentile, that is to all. So, he's the mighty God. Now, the crux of that, the pun being obvious, The crux of that, of course, is this work of Christ. It's that to which we always return, we always think about. We realize that it was then and there, unbeknownst, no doubt, to those watching, that what was taking place was the defeat of sin and death 
for all for whom Christ died, for all who would believe. And Jesus had told his disciples of that. He said, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. He said, this is my body as he broke it. It is given for you. And then that cup he took. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. He was going to deal with sins through his death. It's the new covenant in my bloodshed for forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Of course, we remember all kinds of things. As we remember Jesus, we remember his death and resurrection. But we mustn't forget this, that he's the mighty God. Because he was the mighty God, our warrior king. He could come and defeat sin and death for us. Bring peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other. And thus the guarantee, of course, that a day will come and we'll see it. And there will indeed be peace on earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Pray for me, for us, that we would take great hope, great assurance to know that this mighty King has come, the mighty God. As we can live in the assurance, we know that what he's begun, he'll complete because nothing can thwart him because he's mighty God. We know that no one really can snatch us out of his hand because he's mighty God and no one is stronger than he Thus, his grip upon us is unbreakable. We know that he is able then to keep us from falling and to present us blameless before your glorious presence because nothing can thwart him. And he'll do that with great joy. To enable us, God, this morning around this table to know that, grab hold of that, believe that. So I pray that you would set this bread and this juice apart in such a way that it will enable us to think of Jesus conquering sin and death. Thus we know we have life in him. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.